Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. In this time, on the first Sunday of the month, we've been going through 1 Timothy, and today we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6, uh, starting with verse 6. Okay, number one. What did I do with page one? Ah, there we go. Um, and I... Jonas, if he asks, okay, Jonas has got this song. Anybody recognize this song? You've got to demonstrate your age if you recognize this song. It's a Beatles song. Um, Say you don't need no diamond rings, then I'll be satisfied. Tell me that you want the kind of things that money just can't buy. I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. And the verses today we're going to be going over talk about what does money have to do with your Christian life? Money can't buy you love, can't buy you happiness, can't buy you salvation, can't buy you hardly anything important. But yet, what do we all go to tomorrow? Go to work to get money. We have that social security check coming because we need money. We put money in the 401k because we need money. It's all about money but yet is it? Um, And I think this song has a lot of truth in it that um, we need to have the right perspective on that money just can't buy. I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. You know, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 2021, the median household income, so that means when you drive by a house on the road, that's a household, how much money goes into that household? The median, which is half or more, half or less, the median household income is $70,784. You can figure quick in your head, how does your household stack up? The medium income is $70,000, basically. In 2022, when you're looking at how much are you worth, which is your house, your car, your savings, your 401k, uh, anything you own, minus what you owe on it. So if you have a half a million dollar house, but you owe a half a million on it, that's zero. But if you have a half a million dollar house and it's paid for, that's a half a million. Okay, so um, household values. The top 10%, do you think you're in the top 10% of the United States? Top 10%, their value would be 1.4 million. Okay? That's all they own minus their, what they owe, minus their liabilities. The bottom 10%, what do you think that might be? Well, the bottom 10%, if you take what they own minus their liabilities, credit cards, debt, all that stuff, they're actually at a negative $1,400. Now, what's right in the middle? 50th percentile is $140,000 of value. How do you stack up? Um, Today we're going to look at three chairs, and this is just to help you visualize, because this is not a, you know, like in Sunday school, we went over that 
through all things, in all things, everything's for God. God is everything. A wonderful big spiritual picture. Today we're just talking about money. But this will help us figure out money because it's in the Bible. It's talked about, so it must be something important. So I have these three chairs here. And where am I at? Okay, i got to keep track of time. Um, this chair, chair number one, uh, represents one situation we may have. Sorry, I can't see you guys over there. Where your life surpasses money. Surpasses money. Um, go up to, I think, about the second slide. Um, up one more. One more? There we go. Surpasses money. Okay? Now this chair, nice chair we have here. This chair is the second situation, and it's not a good chair. It's people who seek riches. People who seek money. We want to not be in this chair, but the Bible talks about it, so we're going to talk about this chair. And this chair is kind of a neutral chair. It is those who happen to be in a place in their life where they have secured significant wealth. The Bible talks about rich people. So we got all of us should live in a way that we live beyond money, surpass money. We need it. It's part of our lives. None of us should live in a place where we're seeking to get rich. Some of us might be in this chair where we have significant money and God has some, some commands for us on what we should do with our money. So uh, that is kind of a, a way to help you remember what we're going to say today. So if we look at the verses today, we're going to read verses 6 and 7. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with that we will be content. That's chair number one, somebody that's living with their money, but in a great way, a good way. Um, this chair means that you have the right perspective on money and wealth as it relates to spiritual matters. You have learned to use it as a necessary tool in your life for eternal benefits and to God's glory. You are learning to live beyond money, to surpass money. You understand that it is all God's money and not ours. You understand you brought nothing into the world and you can take nothing out of the world. These verses tell us that uh, we need to learn to live beyond money. And it says that we should target a godliness in our living by living in a manner that surpasses money. The definition of godliness is someone's inner response to the things of God. Now, I don't expect you to write down everything up there, and I'm not sure if it's big enough you can see it, but hopefully it'll help you follow along. Um, and the statement in verse 6 is in direct contrast to verse 5, which if you remember, Mike talked about uh, people that use spiritual matters for financial gain. And he's saying, no, that's not the way it should be. Um, and verse 5 says, those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So the word but that starts number verse 6 is a contrast, okay? There are people that use spiritual matters who ask for all your money um, and want you to give to them, which I, 
there's a lot of good people out there. You got to differentiate. That's part of your spiritual discernment. But there are some bad ones, and they're doing it for their financial gain. I would just just suggest that if you go to give your money to somebody, actually not your money, God's money to somebody, you take the time to check out their organization, their person. Find some other people that say, yes, that guy, that organization is really doing the Lord's work. Just make sure you're careful with your money when you give. Um, So godliness is a way to great gain, but only when it's accompanied by contentment. Believers should all target this contentment that surpasses money. This word contentment is kind of a big word. There's actually, it's used a lot in worldly philosophies back in Paul's day of contentment. Oh, let's get to that place. You know, that kind of, but it's important for us Christians. We ought to be in this place where we use our money, we understand our money, but it's not driving our life. It's a tool that God has given us to use. Um, We ought to be content. Um, It means to be satisfied. It's a frame of mind that is independent of outward things. So let me ask you, are you satisfied with your house, with your clothes, with your car? How about for us guys? How about your tools, guys? Are you satisfied with your tools? How about your man toys? Uh, Are we satisfied with them? And I'm not saying any of that in and of itself is wrong. But we're going to talk some more about what is our relationship to the material values, money that God has given us. Um, So, contentment is, is a frame of mind which has completely independent of all outward things and which carried the secret of happiness within itself. Contentment never comes from the possessions of external things. These are some quotes from some people. When one does not live by the itch for more, and one's life is not dominated by shopping for and acquiring material things, we can find the kind of contentment in God and in His will for our lives. We can only find contentment when our hearts are rooted in internal things. It's hard to be content because we are always seem to have a desire for more than we need. Contentment is difficult, but that's where we are supposed to be, have the right attitude. And this is, uh, when we have godliness and contentment, we have great gain. If you notice in verse 6, if you compare it to verse 5, there's the word financial in verse 5. In here, it's not. This is not great financial gain. This is much broader than that. A gain in our lives that is in a spiritual, emotional sense that we have this great gain in our lives as we learn to live with uh, our lives with contentment um, with our material things. Godliness can bring almost unbelievable contentment when it, which then produces great gains. Great gain comes from when we start putting material things in their proper priority next to spiritual things. Uh, Verse 7 talks about some motivation for contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Um, Billy Graham once said, there's two ways to be rich. 
two ways to be rich. Have a lot or want very little. I thought that was in Have a lot or want very little. Um, verse 7 gives us some motivation for contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. One person said a baby is born penniless. He doesn't even have a pocket to put a penny in. We come into the world with nothing and we go out with nothing. When we die, we carry nothing out of this world. Your wallet will be left behind. Your money will remain in the bank when you are gone. Don't confuse the value of the things of this world with the value of spiritual or eternal things. Don't confuse the value of the things of this world with eternal things. So, one motivation to be content is it's all short-term. It's only in this life. It's nothing compared to eternity. So, when we live in this life, be content with what you have. Um, and then the, he throws out another statement here in these verses. We should be content with only food and clothing. Uh, could we really do that? Could we really be content if we just had food and clothing? If that's the baseline, we all ought to be content. Because I would venture if we go look in your closet, there would be plenty of clothes there. And if we go look in your cupboards, there would be plenty of food. So why are we ever discontent? We should be content. Stay content in your heart and mind with what you have. And take precautions to be content. Uh, there's a book called Severe Mercy. If you haven't ever read it, read it sometime. The gist of the book is uh, a man loses his wife, and she's like in her 40s at a young age, and he's asking, why in the world would God do this? That's the gist of the severe mercy. But a part of that book is um, he is a professor at, in Virginia, and he gets to, he, to teach in Oxford. This is years ago. While he's there, he meets C.S. Lewis, and he becomes a Christian during that time, and C.S. Lewis witnesses to him, and then his wife dies in severe mercy. But a part of that, him and his wife always had a dream of buying a, a little MG car and going around the, any car buffs in here, uh, uh, going around the mountains of Virginia in this little convertible car with their dog in the back seat. They just had this wonderful idea, and they, the whole book is a love story. They just, it's a uh, dream they have. But after they become Christians, and then they accumulate enough money to buy this car, they are very concerned about being content. So they buy this brand new car, and they take a hammer and hit the fender. They smack the fender of this brand new car. Their purpose was, we don't want this thing to be too much in our lives. And for them, that was their precaution, was to hit the thing and put a dent in it. I thought that was pretty interesting. What do we, ooh, I like that. This is pretty nice. I'm not saying you have to put a dent in all your car. Don't come in here next week with every car in the parking. Oh, we could hire somebody to go out while we're all in here and put a dent in your car. I'm not saying that, but be cautious. When something starts looking very interesting and desirable and you want it, make sure you're not putting it ahead of God. That's what I'm saying. Um, anyway, if you want to read that book, A Severe Mercy, it's a, it's a very good book. So, 
we need to stay in chair one. Signs of discontentment when we act without contentment. Um, I talked to Dave Marinetti about this. If you know him, you know he deals with cleaning out houses and storage units and stuff like that. Um, what have people accumulated in their life? Um, their hoarding could be a sign of discontentment. Here's a definition of hoarding by the American Psychiatric Association. It's, it's labeled as a disorder. Um, people with hoarding disorder have a persistent difficulty getting rid or parting with possessions due to a perceived need to save items. Attempts to part with possessions create considerable distress and lead to decisions to save them. The resulting clutter disrupts the ability to use living spaces. I have a son-in-law that years ago worked in the phone industry and have to go into houses and fix your old landlines. And he said he went into one house with a repair order. He couldn't fix it. He said he got in there. There's a row through the clutter that gets you to the lazy boy chair. And when you sit in the lazy boy chair, there's a hole through the clutter to the TV and you can see the TV, but he no way could get to the wall to fix the the TV jack, or to find out what was wrong. Um, be careful about what, how, how much emphasis you put on your stuff. And I was talking to Dave about these verses and, and what he thought from his experience. And this is a fictional story, but I thought it was interesting, so I'm going to read it if that's all right, Dave. He says, uh, hoarding... Um, in extreme cases, hoarding can be like your Aunt Agnes. Again, this is fictional. Aunt Agnes's hoarder house you inherited. The entire place is six feet deep with stuff from the garage through to the basement. There are only a few salvageable items in the garage because the animals got in, leaving a heavy, heavy layer of, and ruined and chewed through waste. The bikes, tires, and seats are all dry rotted. All the cans and metal tools got wet and have enough rust on them to make you wonder about your last tetanus shot. When you finally open the door to the house, you carefully climb over the piles covered in mold, ruined by lack of use. Anything plastic crumbles in your hands from being so old. Metal things are rusted and useless. Any, cl any cloth is, was out of style a couple of decades ago, but that doesn't matter since it's all been chewed by four-legged friends. When you, put, when you pull up the carpet, you realize that even the structure needs extensive repairs. A few things might have value, but you will spend weeks filling up large dumpsters at great risk to your health to find those needles in all the haystack. Then I like this last statement. Consider carefully that every piece you toss in the trash was once treasured, was once something a person paid for with money they had traded a portion of their lives to earn. Anything you have, you've traded a portion of your life to earn it, to have it. And that's fine. Just make sure that that thing is worth the portion of your life that you've traded to earn it. And, and be careful about being content with what we have. Um, so, be content with what you have. Um, okay, time out here. I'm sorry, I got some pages mixed up. 
Um, or maybe they didn't print. All right, well, we're just going to wing it here. Um, chair number two, sorry. Chair number two is the chair you want to stay out of. You don't want to be in it. Uh, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. That's a pretty strong statement there about the love of money. We do not want to sit in this chair with a love of money or desiring to get riches. Be careful about that. Um, do the numbers 11, 30, 45, 52, 56, and Megaball 20 mean anything to you? Do they mean anything to you? How many know how, how big the jackpot is? Uh, they estimate, I, I don't, they draw on Tuesdays and Fridays for this one, I think. So Friday, nobody got it. That was the numbers. If you would have had those numbers, you would have had a little over a billion dollars in winnings. The next one coming up, they estimate will be $1.5 billion. Um, but I'm, I'm going to do a tough question. Should a Christian play the lottery? What is your motivation? And this says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Can you have another motivation besides being rich and play the lottery? Now, you can play the lottery if you can answer that question. And my thinking is, maybe, maybe if I have a budget and I have some entertainment money in that budget. It's purely to go spend on my own entertainment. Maybe I could spend that and buy a lottery ticket. But don't go, don't go spending a bunches of money and really question yourself. What is the purpose of a lottery ticket? Now that's a pretty specific application to this, but be careful about a desire you might have to get rich or a desire you might have um, for a love of money. If you find yourself in this chair, and it could be possible that you really, you know, you're eager to earn money, have money, get money. If you find yourself in this chair, get some help and counsel. Repent and recognize the love of money in your life. Seek out help from others and accountability from someone. Don't go it alone. Get out of this chair in those who seek to get rich, okay? This chair's fallen through. It wouldn't be real comfortable. You don't want to be in that chair. Um, Timothy mentions this in these verses, and so that's something that, that we need to, to cover that makes sure that we stay out of that chair. Um, the last chair represents people who have secured money, significant money. I don't know who that is. You can... You can judge for yourself whether, or them, the statistics I gave you. How does that fit into your life? Um, but in verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope 
in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The first chair is for everyone. We ought to be in this chair, whatever our financial position is, we're living beyond money. If we're in this chair, we want to get out of it. The third chair is you may be sitting in that chair in your life and you may not, but if you're in that chair, there's some special warnings. There's not a lot of rich people generally in any society, and yet Paul takes time to write specifically for that small group of people, Christians in this church, that, hey, if you are one of these people that have money, are, are wealthy, are rich, watch out for these things. So we need to be careful with them. Uh, I think of Timothy. Paul says, hey, Timothy, go command these people. Could you imagine being the, the little old elder, kind of a younger guy, and there's this guy in the community that everybody knows, he has lots of money, he has some business, and Paul says, hey, go talk to that guy. Ah, that would be scary for the church leader to go talk to the richest guy in the church and say, hey, this is what Paul is telling us, telling you what you ought to do with your money. Um, but a rich person must be careful about two perils, arrogance and a wrong hope. Arrogance could be translated conceit. It's a temptation for the rich people, and that is why Paul mentions it here. It is easy to believe that we are more because we have more than another man. It is easy. It is easy. You know, I remember years and years ago, I had a job where I wore a suit and tie every day to work. Every day, suit and tie. When I would go out to lunch or stop at the grocery store or pick up something after work, you got treated differently. For some reason or other, when they see the suit and tie, they're nicer, they take care of you better, they're kinder. They're like, oh, this feels pretty good. Uh, hey, I like this. That's what he's warning the rich people. Don't become arrogant and conceit. Other people might see your car, see your clothes, and oh, yeah, I'm going to get to know this guy because you know, he's got some money. Don't let that get into your mind and in your spirit where you become arrogant or conceited about it. Um, rich people must not put their hope in their wealth, but in God. In the end, all our wealth is uncertain, but our hope in God is absolute and certain. He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Those are some powerful words written here, that richly everything, enjoyment, but the emphasis needs to be on God. He provides all these things. So if you've done well in life and you have some money and, you know, you're not hurting, that's fine. But remember that it's all from God. And if you don't, haven't done so well in life and you're struggling, remember that's all from God too. Whatever we have is God's money uh, and he richly provides everything that we need. Um, we need Understanding who really holds the title to all we possess should change our thinking. We should be aware of everything that everything we have is given to us to serve the Lord. The rich need to focus on doing good deeds with what they have, and their actions should be characterized by goodness and generosity. 
And this result, and the result of this will be a generous, will be generous in sharing a, in a treasure for the future and a life that is truly life. I like that statement. If you live for your money and are proud of your money and are arrogant about your money, you're not living a life that's truly life. If you have all the money you could ever dream of, but yet you're generous, kind, good, then you're living a life that is truly a life. Billy Graham once said, the Internal Revenue Service wants a record of how you spend your money. How many sent in a tax return last year? The Eternal Revenue Service wants a record of how you spend your money, but that is nothing compared to the books God is keeping. He knows every penny how we spend it, how we use it. Um, so today, if you are in this chair, you are doing a great job. I'm not saying how much money you have, whether you have a little or a lot, but if you understand what you have, who it belongs to, and you're using it, as a tool to glorify God, take heart in that. Stay in this chair. You're doing wonderful. If you're in this chair, seriously get with somebody and, and have some accountability and some counsel that your focus is on things of this world and shouldn't be. And if, if you're in this chair, read these verses again and make sure that even though you have wealth, you have a right perspective on what God has given you and your income. And again... These verses are about money, a pretty simple subject, but yet Paul takes the time to write to Timothy, and we need to listen and check our hearts. I don't know for sure how to apply this to any of you, but I just ask that you do in your own thoughts and hearts now. Is there some place where money has more of a priority than what it should? Things you have bought have more of a priority. Maybe you need to go knock a little dent in your car. I don't know. Your motorcycle. Uh, your boat. Do you have something in your life that has grabbed your attention more than what it should? And make sure we take care of that. And let's all be living that life that is truly life. That's where we should be at. Let's live a life that is truly life. That's the person in this chair. Let's pray. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.